0: That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
1: Hello and welcome to The Ezra Klein Show, a podcast on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am coming to you in an extraordinary time. This feels like an extraordinary time. Um, This is a week when it's become clear that President Donald Trump fired James Comey, not just over the Russia investigation, but also before he fired him, had asked him to call off an investigation into his national security advisor, Michael Flynn. This is a week when Republicans have begun, at least two House Republicans, have at least uttered the word impeachment. When Senator John McCain has said that Trump's scandals are becoming of Watergate scale I had a college professor. This is after 9-11, but she was talking about the the 9-11 period. And she said that there are times, she's a history professor, and she said there are times when you can feel the grip of history closing on you, when you are living through something unusual, when you are living through something that will not be skipped over in history books. And I think this is one of those times. We are trying to go about our days, but we are also living through something extraordinary, potentially a crisis of our political system, potentially not, but but certainly something unusual. That's why I wanted to have Yasha Monk on this week. Yasha is he's a very, very, very fascinating guy. He's a political scientist. He's a lecturer on government at Harvard. He's a fellow at the New America Foundation in the political reform program. But he's also a guy who's come to wide national attention for really profoundly unsettling research. What, what he's found, and we discuss this, is a weakening, not just in America but elsewhere, of the consensus around democratic governance, around democratic norms. He's found that all these unusual political outcomes we're seeing, they are not that unpredictable if you look at what people are actually saying about what kinds of political systems they want to live in. If you're looking at what they say about what they value and what they don't value, this is a conversation about how our political future may not be like our past, a conversation about why our political present is so strange and what strangeness that does and doesn't represent? Is it authoritarianism? Is it incompetence? Is it populism? Is it xenophobia? What are we looking at here? It can, it can be hard to get perspective as you live through a moment like this. But but this is a conversation about trying at least to think through what some of those perspectives may be. Yasha is a, he's a fascinating guy with a fascinating story. He's a Jewish uh, and grew up in Germany. He's written a remarkable book about that called Strange in My Own Country, uh, he's got a weekly column at Slate and a great podcast of his own called The Good Fight, but he's also just a very brilliant, very thoughtful guy. I enjoyed this conversation very, very much. It gave me a lot to think about. Uh, I think it'll do the same for you. A couple quick requests before we get to the conversation today. Uh, this is a good time to be listening to my other podcast, The Weeds, where I go deep on policy and the events of the day. My colleagues, Sarah Cliff and Matthew Glacys, among others from Vox, we've had a lot to dig into recently. And if you enjoy this, I think you're going to enjoy that. Um, also, please keep sending me questions from my Ask Me Anything at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. And aside from my normal guest request for to just send me anybody you want to hear on the podcast, I would love to hear guests you're interested in from outside politics. I want to make sure this podcast does not become all Trump all the time. We're going to need to be alive to this moment in in politics, but I also think it's important to not be bounded by it. So if you've got some non political folks you'd love to hear uh, in conversation here, please let me know at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. That said, here is Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Ezra. Here's my question for you. (laughs) Okay. What the hell? (laughs) What the hell, what? How how has this all happened? (laughs) Um, Let me, I thought before we dive into the Trump stuff, where we will dive and we will go all the way in, I'd like to talk a bit about the research that I think has formed the background for you Uh emerging as as a big voice in this era, which, which is research fundamentally about the increasing fragility of the democratic consensus. Can can you give me a little bit of an overview of the work you'd been doing before all this? So I'm going to, since I know that you can go deep in this show and I love this show,
2: I'm going to sort of do a real run-up to this, right? I mean, I think basically when you think of how the social sciences think about the political world over the last 50 years, there's this thing called modernization theory, right? And it's this really upbeat story where all the good things go together and as you become wealthier, um, as people become more educated, as they come to have these more sort of liberal views, you also get a real move towards democracy with that, right? And there's this triumphalist story after World War II where people think, look, it's just a matter of time until the whole world gets together on these basic ideas of a strong economy, democracy, and all of those things, right? And then what you've seen over the last like, 20, 25 years in political science and other fields of social science is starting to question that. Being like, well, look, actually, it's interesting. You know, places like Saudi Arabia or the UAE, they've redeveloped economically through oil and other things, and we're not moving towards liberal democracy. Hey, you know what? Yeah, perhaps actually in China, you're not moving towards that. Perhaps sometimes these two things are in conflict a little bit. You have real trade-offs between economic development and democracy. And then you have to ask, which is more important, right? So slowly, this sort of really upbeat consensus about modernization theory has gone away. But here's the thing, there's this one piece of it that nobody has really challenged. And that's that once you've established a working democracy that's pretty affluent, you no longer have to worry. So once you're getting to Denmark, is what Frank calls once you're in Denmark, once you're in Germany, once you're in the United States, you have quite a lot of affluence, You've had a bunch of changeovers of government through free and fair elections. That prosperous democracy is there to stay. You no longer have to worry about it. And the way that political scientists sort of made sense of that is to say that in those circumstances, democratic consolidation is a one-way street. Once you've achieved it, it's safe. And it's because democracy has become the only game in town because everybody agrees about the importance of democratic norms. There's no major people in the political system who disagree with that. So what with my colleague Roberta Stefan Fau, we started to do is to really look at that assumption. Is that actually still true today? And what we found is that it isn't. But you would expect, you know, an overwhelming consensus on the importance of living in a democracy. An overwhelming consensus on we don't want to have anything to do with authoritarian alternatives to democracy. Nobody in the political system who has real power who just systematically flouts and violates the norms. Of democratic governance. And that's not longer the case, right? So people don't give as much importance to living in a democracy than they used to. Um, when you look at Americans born in the 1930s and 1940s, over two-thirds say it's really important to me to live in a
1: democracy, absolutely essential. When you look at millennials born since 1980, it's less than one-third. Say those numbers again, two-thirds of Americans born in the 1930s to 1940s say it's very important to live in a democracy and only one-third less than one-third of millennials. Yes. That's really fascinating. It's mind-boggling.
2: Right. I mean, and, and there's a lot of people who hear this, and it's like this this just seems bizarre. And I think we just assume that there's this deep support for democracy and, and it may be eroding. And and, and, and so what? Are there other findings like that? Yeah. So what's even more shocking is that when you look at actual support for for authoritarian alternatives, you see verse increasing as well. So more young people say democracy is a bad system of government. More young people say, I would love a strongman leader who doesn't have to bother with Congress and elections. More people like the idea of army rule. So when you look at 1995, one in 16 Americans, all age groups, used to think that army rule was a good system of government. Today, it's still low, but it's more than twice as high. It's one in six Americans who now say army rule is a good system of government. When you only look at young and affluent Americans, it's gone from 6% in 1995 to 35% today.
1: How do you rationalize that? So so the the question I'm asking is that intuitively... Hmm does not match my experience. Now, my experience is good for nothing here, right? And anecdata is not helpful. But if one-sixth of Americans, or one-seventh of Americans, were out protesting for a military dictatorship, I'd say, Yasha, that that, that (laughs) totally makes sense to me. But you don't see that. So, what do you think is being said in that? Because I always want to be a little bit Mm -hmm. careful about how I interpret poll numbers like this. People can be trying to symbolically register that they don't like Barack Obama or they don't like Donald Trump. They can be trying to symbolically register just frustration with the system. They can be trolling a little bit. Sometimes you'll get these polls which are, you know, asking people, "Do you like Congress or headlights?" And people say headlights, but they probably don't really like headlights more than Congress. Nobody likes headlights. Right. Right. So how? What is is there a nuanced interpretation of this that you have? Do you have interpretations, not just the flat numbers? Yeah. So, so two things. It's really difficult to know what to make of those
2: numbers, and I'm not actually a public opinion scholar by training. I think I came to. But can you op- play one on a podcast? I can. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I can play anything on a podcast. But no, it, I came to look at the, these public opinion questions because I thought they were the best way of answering the specific question, which is: Is democratic consolidation a one way street? Is there still this broad consensus around it? So. I think that there's many other ways of thinking about this question. That's only one, right? Um, Look, those questions are difficult to pass. I agree. I don't know what it means in the abstract that, you know, a certain number of Americans say, yeah, you know, perhaps army rule isn't bad, right? Um, I want to say two things about that. The first is uh, it really helps to have a baseline, right? It really helps to know 20 years ago, less than half as many people said that than today, right? And so clearly something is going on when systematically in the United States, all of those figures are increasing. When more people are saying they don't like democracy, when more people are saying it's not important for them to live in democracy, when more people are saying they're open to a strong man leader who doesn't have to bother with elections, like once you put the army rule question in that context, I think it takes on a lot more heft, right? The second thing I want to say is like, look, I don't think these people would like army rule, right? I don't think that if tomorrow the colonels the take over, some of them might like it. I think most of them would be like, this is pretty horrible, they're telling me I can't say my political opinion. So, so we shouldn't say, hey, actually, this is deep support for like having the army rule. That, I'm not saying that, but I think it shows something really important, which is that generations that had an experience of fighting fascism or fighting communism, who perhaps had relatives who had suffered under those regimes, who really feared at certain points in American history that their country might be in danger, that the political system might be in danger. They have an instinctive understanding of the importance of defending our political system, the constitution, and so on. And I think a lot of younger people—they don't have that. They don't have a live sense, or at least they didn't until recently, that this could be under threat. And so what they were saying is, I think, look, I'm focusing on all the things for the bad in the system. There's this, that's bad. There's this, that's bad. There's this, that's bad. And there's lots of things for the bad in our system. And I'm sure we'll get to that, right? But they do not want to see what's good about it. And so i are like, look, yeah, why not? Why not something else, right? That doesn't mean that they have some deep reference for army rule, but it shows us the degree to which we've become disenchanted with the country and the political system which we live.
1: I'm going to play amateur uh, public opinion scholar here. Sure. One of the questions I've had reading your research Mm -hmm. and listening to Bernie Sanders, to Donald Trump, to, to politicians elsewhere who have sort of arisen as, in one way or another, critics of the system we're in. And I think one interpretation of it is that I am not certain people believe that what we live in, the thing we call a democracy, because I think when people hear this in a poll, democracy mm. is shorthand for what we have, mm. that they feel like they live in a democracy. And there are ways in which they literally don't, mm. right? The second place finisher in the popular vote becomes a president two out of five times in right. the last uh, five elections. But beyond that, there is a real feeling mm. that the way the system is structured now, the people who have voice are the powerful, are the moneyed, are the elites. Depending on who is speaking, mm. which group is being talked about here is different. When Bernie Sanders is talking about it, it's the moneyed. When Donald Trump is talking about it, sometimes it's people with money, sometimes people with more of a, a soft cultural power. But one of the things that I, I hear in all this is that part of the disillusionment with democracy is not a disillusionment necessarily with idealized democracy. Right. But with the thing that gets called democracy at the same time that people can put $22 million into a super PAC and, you know, you have only your one vote and maybe you only have your one vote in California and you have a 66 of the power of a Wyoming person voting for the Senate. How How do you think about that? No,
2: I mean, I think that's right. And there's actually some public opinion evidence of that in itself as well. So there's a question about how democratically do you think your country is governed? And that has gone down over time as well, right? The question to me is how worried should we be about this? And what does that tell us for our potential to reform? And and it would be nice to tell a story where you say, look, actually what these people are saying is the democracy we have right now, I'm not happy with, because look, there really is problems. And so what I actually want is to make it more democratic, right, like what, what all of those people who are answering in that way are really saying is like, let's get rid of Citizens United. Mm-hmm. And so isn't this kind of good news, right? It's sort of more critical citizens holding the government to account. And, and I just don't think we can read all of this public opinion data in abstraction from Donald Trump getting elected, right? So I think that that what it shows is that all of those people who are saying, hey, I don't think the system is really democratic. And you know what? Like perhaps if this is what they're calling democracy, I don't care about living in a democracy. All I want is somebody who actually gets things done and who shakes things up. And so I do think it makes people much more open to these radical politicians who say, I'm just going to break shit because this ain't working. And that doesn't mean that they're electing Donald Trump because they want him to become, like, military dictator. Like, that, that's not what I'm saying. But it is that there's this deep groundswell of discontent and disillusionment with our institutions that are making people open to saying, you know what, let's let's try something new. How bad could things get? And I think the thing that people are losing out of sight, and which was easier to remember in 1960 when the Nazis had only been beaten 15 years ago and there's a Soviet
0: Union to think about, Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance.
3: Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com.
1: So I want to, before we get into to Trump and, and America, I want to go through two things first, which is one, a bit historical, and then mm-hmm. second, a bit international. So I just got back, literally, it's my first day back from a vacation. That's Welcome why I'm back. tan and seem so calm. <laughs> but- one of the books I read on vacation, which I'm curious if you've read, is They Thought They Were Free? No. So it, this is a book, um, this fun beach reading from Maui. It is a book in which after World War II, a American journalist of German descent mm-hmm. and Jewish ancestry mm-hmm. went and did an almost ethnographic or anthropological study of former members of the National Socialist Party, Nazis, in a small town in Germany. Mm-hmm. And I, I cannot recommend this book highly enough. It's revelatory. I'm actually, I'm surprised you haven't read it. it. It seems so up your alley to me. But what the guy is trying to understand is what did it feel like mm. to just be not a powerful person in Germany, not even an urban person in Germany yeah. during the rise of the Nazis, but just a normal person in Germany. And one of the things, and I, I want to be very clear that I am not in any way analogizing the Nazi party to anything we've here. I think those analogies are honestly grotesque. But one of the things that is interesting about it, I was reading it to try to think about what does it feel like for people to live in unusual times? Do they realize mm. how unusual the times they're living in are? Yeah. Are they able to, huh. to face up to that? And you could just transmute the political rhetoric from then to now so easily. Um, there's a lot in the book because when we think of the Nazis, we think of the Holocaust. I am Jewish. I think of the Holocaust. And you know, a lot of the book is saying these guys didn't really – seemed to know that much about that. Certainly when Hitler was rising, they weren't thinking that much about that. They yeah. had Jewish friends. They didn't really care that much. They were anti-Semites, probably soft anti-Semites for the most part. But they did have a real feeling of voicelessness in their own country. They felt they were, they called themselves little men, right? As opposed to the big men who had control over uh, world events. They talked about how nobody listened to them, yeah. how nobody cared what they thought. And, you know, what they had been excited for, at least initially, was a feeling of status that they were given. And as much as what came after um, Hitler's rise was a hell of a lot less democratic than what preceded it, even when he talked to these people years after World War II, they felt that they had been more listened to. Hmm. They felt that they had had more political power as part of this dictatorship that – at least rhetorically honored them yeah, yeah than as part of this system previously which maybe they technically had had more rights but they felt dismissed by hmm. and it just it, it's left me thinking a lot about the question of status in politics and how you you were talking about uh American um, voters who maybe to say hey go break shit but I'm not sure that is what so many people are saying they're saying I I, I go and talk to these folks and they see a, a Trump say, and he gives them status. He says, I'm here to listen to mm. you. And I don't think what they think he's going to do is break shit. I mean, it turned out to be what he does. But <laughs> I think to some degree what they think he's going to do is going to be in their interests. And having a sort of strong leader in their mm. interests, It, in terms of what people are looking for in voice in a political system, that is more voice than a system that does not have that guy who seems to believe that your interests are the ones that should be elevated. I recognize this is a little bit fuzzy, but but there's something here that I'm struggling with about the way we sort of academically look at the the degree to which people have power in a system or the degree to which a system is democratic and the degree to which they feel they have power and they feel respected by a system. And it seems to me we've maybe dropped into a bad place in the middle of those two theories. Huh. So—
2: a few thoughts here. I mean, the first is that, you know, it's obviously very important to be careful with the analogy yes. to anything around Germany because it just sort of so easily starts sounding like the character. Yep. But I think there is an important parallel and an and important and quite heartening um, difference as well. Um, look, Germany in the 30s felt that they'd been humiliated in World War One with a side treaty. They didn't have a fate of their own nation under, under control. And, and yeah, a lot of Germans had, had, had lived through this very rapid social and cultural and economic transformation, were very fearful of the economic future. And so they wanted somebody who would tell them, you matter as a person, the state cares about you, and we as a nation are going to be powerful again. We're going to start winning again. So there are obvious parallels here. Right? I mean, th- there are elements in Trump's rhetoric that talk in similar terms,
1: that talk about America as this. And, and maybe it's worth saying nation. that this is just common to populism of all kinds. Yes. Right? It's not I'm just right. America 2016, and, you know, like, yeah, it's yeah, exactly. a million kinds of populism. It's a very deep well in which we're drawing. So I, d- I just want to be, because I think we both feel this way, I just want to be very careful that nobody not, thinks right. we're no, no, exactly. pulling that but, analogy.
2: But, but, this, but this is exactly where the disanalogy yeah. is, right? That, like, when you look at the degree of problems that Germany faced in 1931. It's just in a different um, level, right? I mean, look, the Iraq war or the fact that China is rising and America is to some degree declining in relative terms. You know, I can see how people feel humiliated by that. But it's not like what World War One with a side treaty did to Germany, right? I can see Obviously, lots of reasons why people feel economically disenfranchised and very worried about the future. But it's not the same as the Great Depression in an era before most sort of social welfare systems and and just the complete destruction it had, right? So, so I think it's important to recognize both the common drivers of these developments and then the degree to which they're on different
1: levels. Let, let's right? talk about common drivers in a more modern sense, because yeah. something I think is really valuable about the work you do is it has a more international perspective than we often do here. Yeah, Americans in particular, I think, can look at all questions as we have whatever case studies we have from America, and then there's nothing else of value to look at anywhere in the world. And you've been tracking this happening in a lot of countries, hmm, that this yeah. sort of rising illiberal attitudes are not unique to America. But, and and I'd be curious if you say a little bit about that. I guess where has there been a measurable slide in public opinion? And then where has there been a measurable slide in outcome? So of democratic outcome. Of democratic outcome, a genuine... Yeah, I, I think you call it democratic deconsolidation. Right. Well, so so what I call
2: democratic consolidation is sort of a step before in a way, right? So so we have good measures, maybe Freedom House and other organizations, of like, how democratic is your government, actually? And I think that we need to start thinking about what the warning signs are. And some of my research is sort of trying to figure out, okay, look, like, we, we know what it looks like once an election is just rigged all the way down, or the Supreme Court is like stacked with your own cronies, Right. But what we don't have a theory of is like, what a warning signs that this sort of thing might be starting to happen in a place like the United States or France, right? When you look at those existing big Freedom House measures, you know, the United States is doing excellently now as it was three or four years ago. And I think anybody who's living through this moment knows that that there's been a change, That 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 we have more reason to worry about what's going on today than we would have done three or four years ago. So one question is, how do you Measure the degree of threat. And that I think is looking at some of those public opinion measures and is looking at whether or not politicians in the system actually have respect for democratic
1: norms. Right. And so, on that, we hey, can we ask have, you a quick cool question yeah. about that. I'm going to interrupt you. Are you sure that's true? And, and here's, here's what mm. you just made me wonder. Let's imagine that you are polling Americans right now in the age of Trump. Mm. And you all of a sudden notice there's an uptick in mm. people saying, Maybe a military dictatorship wouldn't be that bad. Maybe, you know, something else wouldn't be that bad. And I think that sort of what you're implying there is something related internally to the Trump phenomenon, that the people who are behind someone who strikes you as having authoritarian strongman Mm. instincts are saying uh, yes on that poll. But it might be. That what you're seeing is frustration with Trump from people who don't Mm. want to blow up the system, who will be happy voting for Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Cory Booker in the next election, but are so angry that they're seeing something else. I guess I'm just wondering how you think about in these polls the fact that a lot of people say, let's do something else out of dissatisfaction as a way to register dissatisfaction when that may actually not be the part that is coinciding with um, actual liberal figures. But, but let's zoom out here, right? I mean, look, it may be
2: that some of the people, if you ask Paul today, and by the way, my dad is from before Trump was elected. But if you looked at some of the people today who are like, look, perhaps the army rule wouldn't be so bad. What we really have in mind is like McMaster, you know, getting rid of Trump. And, and, and the reason why we want McMaster to get rid of Trump is that they're really worried about the state of democracy and what Trump is doing, right? Perhaps. But zoom out a moment. I mean, that is not a consolidated democracy, according to the whole body of literature of like how it is that democratic consolidation is a one-way street, and at a certain point you don't have to worry anymore. You should not be getting to that point. Right? Sure, but so, it,
1: but it isn't if they mean it. Is I think the thing that I am struggling with here a little bit. When when you say that what you would be looking right. at internationally is sort of this kind of survey data. Yeah. So I cover healthcare a yeah, lot. Yeah. And one of the things that always happens is that before there's a plan, you say mm-hmm. to people, Hey, would you like a universal healthcare system? And everybody's like, 85% 100% so, right. would love a universal yeah, healthcare system. You're like, okay, here's a universal healthcare system. Be like, that is some garbage. Yeah. I don't like that at all. And so I just I wonder but, a little bit about what we're But, but let's distinguish yeah. between two things, right? Like one is trying to draw very
2: specific conclusions from public opinion data, right? Like because 80% of people say, you know, yes, I want universal healthcare, and yes, I want coverage of pre-existing conditions. And, you know, yes, I want the state to support, uh, you know, to pay, like, nine-tenths of um, what I have to pay for health insurance. And by the way, no, I don't want to raise taxes, right? <laughs> and so, like, when you get to a situation we you have to decide between them, you see that some of that public opinion doesn't really make sense, right? So, so one question is, like, how specific an inference can you draw from that? If one in six Americans now say, like, army rule, does that really mean that they would cheer on the colonels when they come out? No. But, but that's not the question I'm asking. The question I'm asking is that everybody, the reason why people are so sure about the stability of liberal democracy is that they've said, look, it's the only game in town. Everybody agrees about it. No other things on contention. And then when you see people saying, no, you know what? Perhaps some alternatives are okay. That's a really serious warning sign, not because I draw these very, very specific implications right. from that, but because our, one of our reasons for thinking that our political system is stable has been to say, well we have this huge consensus around it. And I don't think we do. Now, what does it mean that we don't have a consensus around that? Well, that's complicated, right? And we're still starting to figure it out. But but the fact that that consensus isn't there really pushes against some of the most important theoretical grounds we had for having this huge confidence in our political system. Look, most political systems in the history of the world prove to be unstable at some kind of yeah. point, right? Like it, it can seem in this discussion as for the common sense assumption is to say that because the United States has been around for 250 years and because democracy has done very well over the last 50 years, this is just the system that's going to be stable now. I mean, divine rights monarchy was the dominant political form in a huge swath of countries for centuries. And people at the time thought, well, that's just how humans organize. That's how it's always going to be. And then a bunch of social and economic conditions changed and one divine rights monarchy after the next started to top, right? So the question that I'm asking is, can we be so confident that just because in the last 200 years in the United States, in the last 50 years in Western Europe, in the last 20 years in a few other countries in the world, democracy has been really stable, we can have this assumption that this is just the world we live in, democracy is always going to be stable. And, 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 and there I think, you know, no, because look at some of the unique conditions that were in place during that period of time, right? So for most of human history, the, the, the economy grows at most at 0.1% a year, right? So you grow up, likelihood is that, you know, if you happen to live to the age of 60 or 70, which most people didn't, you're going to be about as wealthy or about as poor as you were when you grew up. There's uh, a bunch of cyclical developments. You know, if it was a good harvest, then you were much wealthier because you could actually eat. If a, har- if a harvest had failed, then you were starving. Year to year varied, but basically there's no reason to think that in 460 you were going to be wealthier than in the year 400. Right. Right. And then for the last 200 years, you've had this incredibly rapid economic growth. And that is the period in which we've had the stability of liberal democracy. And now there's a bunch of economists, and I'm not an economist, I know they're right, but they're saying, no, we're entering a period of secular stagnation. We shouldn't expect the kind of economic growth we've had for the last 100 years, for the next 100 years. Under those conditions, would liberal democracy be stable? Is what we need for liberal democracy For our country to be relatively affluent, which it will continue to be, for us to have much more than our ancestors could have imagined, which we'll most likely continue to have? Or is the condition for the stability of liberal democracy that actually there's a real improvement in living standards from one generation to the next? So people can say, you know what, I grew up without a fridge and without a car, and now I have a fridge and a freezer and two cars and a home entertainment system. I don't know. We don't have empirical evidence for answering that question. but We have to take that question seriously. And we haven't
1: been taking that question seriously. So you came by my office four or five months ago Mm -hmm. now. And we had, um, as a reporter, you don't always have these conversations. So you know them when they happen. I had a conversation with you where it's like, I could have spent six months writing out all the article ideas that you were (laughs) spewing out. And I want to follow up on what you just said uh-huh. because I had notes from that conversation that I went back over before today. And I remembered something that I wasn't able to write about, but I thought a lot about. You made this declining intergenerational mobility point to me, mm-hmm. um, th- this issue of living standards. But then you said, uh, and these are my notes, so they may not be exact, that democracy was founded amidst mono ethnic, monocultural countries. It is a historically unique experiment to turn them into multi-ethnic democracies. The U.S. had an unequal multi-ethnic democracy for a very long time, but is now becoming an equal multi-ethnic democracy. I found that very provocative. I've thought about it a lot since then. And I've particularly thought about the way in which it connects to the declining rate of growth and living standards. Mm -hmm. Growth is still going. I don't want to get too far into the secular stagnation hypothesis. But who gets that growth is not being very equally shared. And one fault line in that is that people, sometimes they get mad at the rich who are getting that growth. And sometimes they just get mad at people who are not like them. Certainly some of Donald Trump's appeal was it people who don't look like you, you being white America. Um, They're getting a lot of government handouts. They're coming in over the border and taking your jobs. I'd be curious to hear you talk a little bit more about the ways in which the era of democratic rise is now also colliding with an era of very multi-ethnic and much more um, equal democracies, and particularly in the U.S.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, we've talked a little bit about the economic stagnation, the kind of effects that might have. And then there's a second question around identity and what it means to be a nation that is really important. And I'm going to say something about that in a moment. And then we'll probably get to the intersection between those two. And that's where it gets mind-bogglingly complicated. And I'm still trying to make sense of it, right? So look, in a country like where I grew up, Germany, but in, but in most of Europe, um, there is a really deeply mono-ethnic understanding of who belongs. Who belongs are people who are descended from the same tribe, essentially, right? I mean, there's an imagined idea that a German is somebody who ran around with Germanic words, you know, at the time when Caesar was sort of, you know, complaining about those people, right? And it's not, I think, a coincidence that the moment when democracy takes hold and Germany in a stable way, in Italy in a stable way, and a bunch of countries in Western Europe in a stable way, is after World War II, when because of the war and the Holocaust and expulsions afterwards, you have created these really monoethnic nations, these homogeneous nations, for the first time in European history, essentially. It's easier to submit to being ruled by your fellow citizens when you feel like. You share all of those cultural markers, the same religion, the same history, right? And then you've had the sort of mass immigration in Europe over the last 50 years, which had a couple of interesting characteristics. The first is that it was from culturally quite different spaces, people who are easily identifiable as not, quote-unquote, belonging to the nation because they look different um, ethnically, um, people who have different religions often, and people um, who weren't seen as long-term compatriots. The German term for this, which is sort of particularly striking, but it's similar in other countries, was Gastarbeiter, a guest worker, right? So in a way, that's a nice metaphor, right? I mean, you treat guests nicely, but also, you know, at 10 p.m., you sort of like suddenly look at your watch and they leave. So what happens when they don't, right? And so actually the content hasn't thought for a very long time that, oh, damn, these people are here to stay. And we now have to either essentially have a caste society or a two-class society, or we have to start really thinking of them as our compatriots. And some people embrace that and think that's good. And, and it, 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 it makes for a more liberal conception of what a German or a Frenchman or an Italian is. It's more universal. It's great. And a bunch of people say, no, those aren't Germans. So in Germany, it's really striking. So you go back to 1992, and I'm coming up with public opinion stuff again. Um, you, know, you ask somebody, somebody who's born in Germany to Turkish parents. Either more German or more Turkish? The way of asking that question, by the way, is revelatory, because in the States, you wouldn't ask a question in those terms. And only about a third of Germans said he's more German. 25 years later, the same pollster ran the same question again, and the exact same number of people said he's more German than Turkish. So there hasn't been a change in this in twenty-five years. So that's a huge challenge. Now, the States is a little different because um, it, it never was a homogeneous country, right? There was always people of different ethnicities in the country. Um, but there's a very clear racial hierarchy sure you had Native Americans sure you had African Americans but they were very badly treated and though you had people from more different nations and religions coming in they actually still had a lot of commonality by and large they were European and Christian right some Jews and now for the first time the country has to actually grapple with making a multi-ethnic society which it has always been but an equal multi-ethnic society where we're overcoming the racial hierarchy and by the way we've done some, made some real progress in that compared to 50 years ago. And with something that's often forgotten, I think, in discussions today. Compared to 50 years ago, the United States is a much, much, much more equal society among racial lines. But it's obviously still far from being truly equal. And similarly to Europe, there are some people who embrace that equality and aspire to it and want to push it further, and some people who are really frightened by it. And that is, both of those are sort of unique experiments. We don't have many examples in human history of Equal multi-ethnic democracies. So we're struggling to create one.
1: So this speaks to a debate that has been very heated and long-running over the past two years, I would say, three years maybe in America, which is the rise of right-wing populism, mm. uh, which I think we, again, typically talk about this in America about Donald Trump, but it has it's the Le Pens in France. Yep. It is Brexit uh, in England. I mean, you see this in a lot of different countries. Is it a function of economics and economic stagnation. Right. And so as soon as the economies are growing well again, it'll just sort of like poof, go away. Or if we had a better social safety net, it would poof, go away. Um, or is it a reaction to these very sharply changing, very fast-changing demographics? I mean, something that I think mm-hmm. people don't always realize is that in America and then also in Europe... The demographic change, the, the racial ethnic demographic change in the past 50 years, very rapid, 30 years has been very, very rapid, yeah. particularly in Europe because of the opening of the, the EU. A lot of the evidence I've seen has tilted me more towards the this is about changing demographics. It was mm-hmm. not all that heavily correlated to growth rates in the last couple of years. But I also recognize the interplay is complicated. I'm curious where where you come down on that, where where the evidence feels strongest to you.
2: So let's take them one by one. So I think that there's a lot of really simplistic thought going on in this space. The first simplistic thought is that it's, it has to be one or the other, right? And that's just like generally speaking, the social world is not monocausal. When really interesting big phenomena are going on, it's rarely one thing that makes it happen. I know it's it's a often bummer. an uh, <laughs> interplay, right? Well, no, it's not a bummer because it means that, it is, that you have all to these write about that... it. I'm just kidding. I guess, yeah, I'm, I'm no, kidding, no, I see what it's like. I see what it's like. It's a dumb joke. <laughs> um. So, so first of all, it's not clear to me that we have to remake it one or the other. But even when you look at each of them, um, it's a little more complicated than people want to say, it, right? So, so I've seen a lot of analyses which are, you know, does your income level predict very well whether or not you support Donald Trump? No, it doesn't. it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. It's true. It doesn't. So it's nothing to do with the economy. I think that's such a simplistic thing to jump to. It seems to me that when you look into the granular details, it becomes much more predictive. So it's not about... How wealthy are you? A, because the very poorest often aren't that tempted by forms of populism um, or, or even forms of fascism historically, um, because they have direct benefits that they get from the state and they sort of need it in, 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 a, in a bigger way. And, and precisely because it's often around resentment. It's a feeling of decline. Now, people at the very bottom of, of society have always been at the bottom, don't have a feeling of decline. we have always been at the bottom. The people who ha- who have a feeling of decline are sort of the lower middle classes, the middle classes who feel that they're slipping. Those are probably the people in the book that we are talking about, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, so so that's the first reason. Also historically, like the people who vote for Republican are much wealthier, right? So so actually that's shifted down in the Trump election. That's that's significant. But what's really going on, I think, is and I know people sort of borrow this phrase, is is economic anxiety. When you look at the communities who voted for Trump, it is people. Where locally there's very little economic growth, who perhaps are still doing fine, but who have neighbours who are underwater on the mortgage, who have the next community over that's not doing very well, who are in sectors of the economy where they actually have good reason to think that they're going to suffer from automation and so on, who are in more rural areas, um, which which aren't profiting from globalization and technology in the way that New York City, or Washington D.C., and the Bay Area are, so once you start looking at slightly more detailed things there, it becomes more of a story. And similarly for the sort of identity and and, and demographic transformation sort of thing, right? Look, there's a really simple argument against this that people weirdly don't make, but that, that is simplistic in exactly the same way, which is, well, if it's driven by demographic transformation, why isn't New York City voting for Trump in massive numbers? Why isn't California voting for Trump in massive numbers? It's not true that the parts of a country that vote for Trump are the parts of a country that are most diverse. Right? Well, we have an understanding that it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, three quarters of American counties were more than 90% white 20 years ago and are now less than 90% white. I think that moment of a demographic transition is often when you get the most anger. So as you go from being in a pretty diverse place and you have to deal with people who are not like you all of the time anyway to being in a place that's really diverse and you have to deal with people who are not like you, you know, more often, it doesn't matter so much to people. But when you go from a place where everybody's like you, basically, and you really don't have to deal with people who don't speak perfect English, who, who have different beliefs from you, and then suddenly this is a part of your daily life, that's when people often get really, really scared. And that's true in a lot of a country. And it's true in a lot of the places but voted for, for Donald Trump. Now, how do these things fit together? How do they interrelate? And, and that, I think, is a really important thing. I, I've thought a lot about the image of somebody who is proud of a job and that gives them an identity. You ask somebody 30 years ago who was a coal miner, somebody who works in a factory, somebody who's in a union, who are you? So a question, who are you? I think a lot of them would have said, I'm a coal miner. I'm a member of the Teamsters. I'm a foreman in a factory. And as they lose those jobs, and perhaps they're still doing materially okay, perhaps they're now a shift manager at Walmart, but they've now transitioned into jobs that don't give them the same identity, that don't give them the sense of collective belonging, that don't give them the same pride. And you ask them, who are you? And so, well, you know what? I, I'm white, I'm not being treated well in this country anymore, and I'm resentful that those people over there are now doing better. Right? So a lot of the racial resentment, a lot of the resentment at the demographic transition I think is itself driven by those underlying more complicated economic fears. It's one thing to say, look, I'm twice as rich as my parents were, my kids are going to be twice as rich as me, and oh look, that immigrant over there, he's doing really well too. Good for him. Versus I feel like I've worked really hard all my life and I haven't gotten ahead. I, I don't have a better life than my parents. And I think my, my kids are going to be screwed. And why on earth is that immigrant over there doing okay? Right? It it just changes the context in which we have this conversation.
1: So one of the things that I think is very true there and concerning there, one is that I, I continuously think people underestimate the speed of and seriousness of the democratic change we're having. The the stat yeah. I always use is that we're now at a point where a majority of infants under the age of three are non-white in America. Mm. That's just a huge tipping point. We have not had that before. It began about two years ago that we saw that. It's going to become more so in, in the coming years. And that moment of, losing a majority among the very, very young. I think people feel that in ways that are, are in some ways, actually even just hard to to get through. you talked about mm-hmm. how a lot of the concern here is localized to communities or concentrated in communities that are not that diverse. But those communities are partaking in the same national culture we all are. Yeah, They turn on the Oscars and they get lectured by Chris Rock about institutional racism, right? They turn on the television and the president is an African-American man. And they still get told that, you know, They're the privileged class. That they're the ones who are, you know, in charge. Um, And I think a a lot of of tensions emerge around that. But by the same token, I think it's interesting that you know what Trump was able to do. And I don't want to necessarily go too far down this road because I want to make sure we talk quite a bit about more what he is doing than Mm. how he rose up. But what Trump did, and what Brexit did, and what Le Pen did, and and other things is, I think it does require a sense, um, and it did build on a sense that. You know, nobody was being honest before this guy or this Mm. woman about who was really holding me back Mm. because the elites were too politically correct. The elites were too bought off by this sort of new cultural cosmopolitanism to say honestly that, you know, when an immigrant comes here, it means he takes one of my jobs, that um, if the government is going to be helping these people over here, it means that they're not helping me. And I think that there is a, particularly in an era when we are not growing as fast as we have at other points and still not growing as equally as we have at other points, I think one of the geniuses of Trump, and I talked about this on on the podcast with Chris Hayes, uh, mm-hmm. is that he intuits the power of zero-sum frameworks of politics. Yeah. yeah. That a lot of us who sort of do this stuff professionally have actually probably spent a lot of time training ourselves to think unintuitively about positive sum trades and yeah. how capitalism or immigration can make everybody better off because if people come here are compliments to domestic labor, not right. substitutes. But when I just talk to people about any of this stuff, or even when I introspect uh, on how I intuitively think about it, the logic of... The economy being zero sum, the logic of group competition being zero sum. One, it is at least sometimes true, right? right. Status can be zero sum at times. Um, affirmative action was a place where people felt a zero-sumness mm. because there really were only so many spots in a college. And then often it just feels true, even if it isn't. Yeah. And I think that the allure of zero-sum politics is much greater than people realize. And it's something that that these sort of right-wing populists are the are, are really opening back up and showing its power.
2: And, and it does intersect with something we were talking about a moment ago, which is that, you know, here's the broadest way of framing that fear, that liberal democracy may depend for its healthy functioning, at least, and possibly for its very survival, on people recognizing that politics can be a positive sum game, And the circumstances in which we recognize that may be relatively limited. There may be circumstances of relative international peace and stability, and, and huge increases in affluence, right? Like when you see the cake doubling every 25 years, it's easy for the rich to say, well, I'll, I'll take half of the new gains and let other people have more of them. When the cake still grows, but it's growing more slowly, and the rich say, well, I still want to get something out of this. And they hold a lot of the societal power, as they have in every society in human history, including, unfortunately, in democracies. Um, they end up taking all of the gains. And then for the rest of the population, it is zero-sum. When you look at the 99% of Americans over the last 30 years, it has been a zero-sum game, right? It didn't have to be. This is a political choice or a set of political choices we've made. But as a matter of fact, the pie hasn't grown for the bulk of the American population for 30 years. So they're not that deluded in feeling like they're in a zero-sum world. And then all of those tribal identities become... Activated now, you know, in terms of transformation, you're talking about and, and how people perceive it and, and, and feel it. You know, I, I've been starting to think a little bit about about American identity. I, I took on American citizenship a couple
1: of months ago. Congratulations! Thank you very much. You're, you're you're buying you're buying the brand low. <laughs> no, I'm kidding.
2: <laughs> well, I, I could not have been more proud to swear to defend the
1: Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Can, can I but, ask you yeah. what taking that test felt like right now? I just mean emotionally. I just you're you're very involved in this moment, Um, and something that I remember thinking about my civics classes growing up. And my father uh, was an an immigrant who also uh, took the citizenship test at a certain point, so I'm a little bit familiar with the test itself. And I sometimes think about what we are asking immigrants to agree is the truth about our country, Hmm. and then what they see when they turn around. Yeah, Uh, I don't. I don't mean to. I don't think it's all different. But there's something about who we present ourselves as and somewhat about what we are struggling with now. And I'm I'm curious, given where you are coming from, if that felt striking to you or if that just wasn't part of that experience.
2: It it was. I mean, obviously, it was very much on my mind. I mean, the thing about the ceremony was that it was sort of quite beautifully done. um, And it kept emphasizing this idea of America as an immigrant nation. It was held at the JFK um, Presidential Library in Boston. Um, and and one speaker after the next kept emphasizing that JFK himself was, of course, a descendant of relatively recent immigrants. Um, I haven't mean, even played it up. They said that he was the grandson of immigrants. I think he was actually the great grandson of immigrants when you, when you, when you look at it closely. Um, you know, the, the judge who presided over the proceedings said that just a year before, he had done a similar ceremony here, and it was very special for him because his daughter-in-law was becoming a citizen, so he himself was sort of um, making his own daughter-in-law a citizen, um, they chose a, a speaker, Muhammad Ali, who's the head of Carbonite, um, who is himself an immigrant and obviously Muslim. And that wasn't entirely a coincidence, right? So there was something to the setting that that that, that was emphasizing that. But, but here's the thing. I, I buy that narrative deeply. Now, I don't think we've realized it. I'm not naive about the fact that America is not a, an equal multi-ethnic democracy in the age of Donald Trump. But I, I am still more optimistic about the United States being able to think of people of any ethnicity and religion and provenance as real Americans than anywhere else in the world. Look, I come from a Jewish family as well. My grandparents grew up in a shuttle in Eastern Europe. My parents grew up in Poland, got thrown out in 68. We ended up in Germany and Denmark and Sweden, different parts of my family, and the United States. When you ask me, are you German? Do you feel German? It's It's complicated. I grew up there, but I never... If I mentioned I was Jewish, I wasn't quite German. It gave me a very weird status in that society. You could go into a bakery and not mention it, and people thought I was Jewish. The moment I mentioned it, I stopped being German in an uncomplicated way. I asked my American cousin, who has exactly the same family background, do you feel American? He looks at me like I'm crazy. What do you mean? Do I feel I am American? I was born here. I'm American. Right? So there is still something in the society that makes integration succeed, in a way that is not true in virtually every other society in the world, with the exception of Canada, one or two other places. So I buy this narrative. One of the reasons why I wanted to become American is that I think if multi-ethnic democracy is going to work anywhere in the world, it's going to be here. And that's what I want to fight for, and fight for in part against some of the political forces we see at the moment. So look, it's easy to sit there and sort of roll your eyes at some of the rhetoric, and some of the rhetoric is sort of, you know, they can't say, perhaps you will be president one day, because obviously we're all be- being naturalized, so we can't. We're not natural born. But but we say, perhaps your child might be the president of the United States. Perhaps one of the children of the 200 people there is going to be president, right? The likelihood is very, very low. So it's easy to sort of call bullshit on that stuff. But I actually buy the narrative that underlies it. And, and, and I want to go one step further, which is to say that I don't, I don't want to make too simple an analogy. here. I, I think it's it, it's a very different thing. But I grew up Jewish in Germany, Being treated incredibly well most of the time with people who are deeply ashamed of a country's past, whose most ardent and honest and admirable desire was to show to me their contrition and the love of the Jews. And it made me feel like I would never be a true member of that society. And I think that it's difficult to think about that at the same time as as Donald Trump is going around spewing the most horrible hatred about different ethnic groups, right? Like there's a luxury problem to have, and I recognize that. But we have to keep that in our mind, that we have to have a sense of what is an American that builds on some of those myths, which are half-truths, as myths always are, but which are aspirations as well. And we have to retain some idea of what will it mean to become an American where we, we struggle against some of that institutional racism. We struggle against some of the open racism we see coming from various politicians. That we preserve the sense of what we have in common and where you don't have to be defined by who you are. That's really important to me. I didn't want to be defined as a Jew. I'm not religious for various reasons. It's not that important to me. One reason reasons why I feel more comfortable in the States is that here being Jewish doesn't define me. Being black to some degree still does define you in America. I know that. I'm not naive about that. But I think a truly just America is going to be one where that can be important to you and you can be a member of a black church and you can hang out mostly with black people. That's fine, that is your choice. But you also have a true option not to have that define you. And that's always been part of a promise of America. That promise has never been realized. But I actually think that it's important to hold on to some version of that promise if we want to have a way forward that both makes people truly free and helps us see what we have in common in a way where people in very different parts of a country with very different experiences can relate to each other.
1: So let's use that, um, and, and thank you for sharing that, as a segue to talk about different questions I think that this era in politics, the Trump era in politics has raised. Yeah. Your work and and one of the ways in which we began talking is about illiberalism. Mm-hmm. It's about democratic backsliding. Yeah. And there's a dimension of Trump that has often seemed to have authoritarian instincts. He's praised authoritarians in other parts of the world literally for being authoritarians when you hear him say what he likes about a Kim Jong-un or Saddam Hussein or Vladimir Putin. He'll often... In case he thought it was just a coincidence that he happens to like overworld dictators. He will call out that, you know, they're not bothering with due process. They just kill the terrorists or whatever it might be. Um, You know, he's a guy who just clearly does not believe in the role of the media. Even if he's very obsessed with it, does not sort of see it as a safeguard of anything particularly important, has been pretty dismissive of other American institutions at, at different points. And yet, one of the things I ask, I talk to a lot, I spend probably most of my time now in reporting talking to Republicans, and I always ask them, what do you think that coverage from people like me, people who are critical mm. of Trump is getting wrong? And the thing that, that they tell me all the time is that this hysteria that he'll be a dictator an authoritarian, they say, look at, look at what is happening here. This guy is, in, they, they will frequently say, this guy is completely incompetent. It's the Keystone Cops up there. Mm. There are dangers from incompetence. But there's not a danger to American institutions, not from a guy who is operating his government like this. So, my question is compared to the eve of the inauguration, which is about when we last spoke, Mm. when I think that you had a lot of concern about a more illiberal architecture uh, being constructed, how are you feeling about that? How are you feeling about not if Trump is a good or bad president? but the threat Trump's instinctual illiberalism does or does not pose to American institutions. So so instinctual illiberalism is exactly right. So uh, let me talk a
2: little bit about societies in which democracy has come under real threat. Um, places like Poland and Hungary, which are not by any stretch of the United States. They're far less wealthy. They have far, far less of a history of stable democratic institutions. But they are countries that, that political scientists were really hopeful about. But five or 10 years ago, they said, look, Poland is... The best case of post-communist transition to democracy, Um, it has all of these good signs, its economy has done very well, it has a really active civil society, it's had lots of turnover of government for free and fair elections. This is coming pretty close to a stable, consolidated democracy. And that turned out to be wrong. And actually, some of those warning signs that we've been talking about earlier in our conversation could have predicted that, and we ignored them. But here's the main point. The, the people who took over like Kaczynski in Poland or Orban in Hungary, but also people like Putin in Russia, Erdogan in Turkey, Modi in India, they share a bunch of similar characteristics. They say the establishment will have you believe that it's really difficult to solve all of these problems, to keep doubling the standard of living of people every 25 years. Or whatever. Right? or Well, they're lying to you. Politics is actually really, really simple. The problem is that the establishment is corrupt and self-serving, and they cahoots with minorities. They care more about refugees or Muslims or whatever it is When they care about real Poles or Hungarians or whatever like you. And so what you need to do is to elect me. I represent the people. I have common sense. I'm going to fight for what ordinary people want. I'm going to give them a voice. And then everything is solved. Now what happens is that they get into power. They get into government. And they can't solve all of these problems because these problems are really complicated. So they have to tell a story. And what story do they tell? They say, it's sabotage. I'm persecuted. The problem is that there's are still the old elites that have power in the system. And they're stopping me from doing the things I need to do. So we need to crush them. We need to get rid of media freedom. We need to get rid of the power of courts to stop the things that I want to do. We need to undermine the independence of institutions. And that very quickly builds a really hierarchical democracy. It still has elections every now and again, but it doesn't have freedom for the opposition to organize and speak freely. And so those countries become captured quite quickly. They have this sort of formal democracy, um, but they really are no longer in a true way democratic. Now, when I look at Donald Trump, I see exactly the same narrative, exactly the same instincts. But you are right with the difference that some of those people, like Orbán and Kaczynski, are ideologues. And they're smart. And they have a vision of where they want the country to go. And they systematically take the steps to increase the power and undermine the independence of other institutions and so on. And I see someone like Donald Trump, and I, he, he has all the same instincts, and he loves those people. He says that he likes those people, and he speaks in exactly the same ways. But I don't think that Trump sort of has a vision of, by 2020, I need to have undermined the power of the Supreme Court and stacked the bureaucracy, and, and here's my plan for doing it. I, I don't think he does that. Right? So the question is, will he stumble in an authoritarian direction, early enough and with enough force that he can actually push the system in that direction. Well, I think he seems to be screwing it up, which is good news. Um, I mean, I think um, he both missed his chance on a couple of things. So in stuff like the Supreme Court, he ended up nominating Neil Gorsuch, who's not somebody I agree with on lots and lots of things, but who is not a crony who's going to vote for whatever he wants. So he missed some easy opportunities. Um, and he's been so blatant in the opportunity he tried to take, like firing the head of the FBI, but it's created a counter-reaction. And you take those two things together, and I think that hopefully touch wood, we are doing a better job of containing some of his danger, some of his illiberal energy, some of his attacks on democratic norms, than I feared might happen if he played
1: his cards smartly three months ago. I, I want to maybe draw this distinction between instinctual and ideological Mm -hmm. in illiberalism. Because I think it's important. And I think that there are ways in which exculpatory is too strong of a word. But there are ways in which I think this conversation could be unfair to Trump. Um, Let me give the example maybe of Trump's war with the media, his quote-unquote war with the media, and his firing of James Comey. I think those two things are among the most illiberal campaigns that he has waged. Mm -hmm. And yet... They do not in either case seem to me to be motivated with him by a principled view on his point or even a thought through view of what the media should be like, that it should be less powerful. I think he just wants it to be nicer to him. And what's interesting about him, just to finish the thought, is that he does not like that he gets angry at the media but is very, very helpful to it. Is consistently giving the New York Times and the Washington Post hmm. huge scoops. He gives them an early <laughs> look at his budget. I mean, there are ways that he could he could even it would be so easy for him to just give his scoops to Fox News and Breitbart. Yeah, right. That would actually be a very effective way of strangling
3: hmm.
1: um, some of these institutions. He could even just give more to the Wall Street Journal, which is at least somewhat more pro-Trump than than the Times and the Post at this point. But but he doesn't. His 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 anger is somehow severed from the action there. Mm-hmm. He just gets mad. He yells at them. He scolds them. He's like in an abusive relationship with them. And then James Comey, I think, was also interesting. I think that is a single Donald Trump firing the director of the FBI because the director of the FBI was launching or feeding an investigation on, on Trump's campaign's ties to Russia is, I think, probably the single most liberal thing Trump has done. Absolutely. No doubt. And yeah, I, I sort of agree with David. Well, but When does this podcast air?
2: I want to be sure that it. there's not sort of Tuesday. 24 hours yeah, between, you know, okay. so we, We're going so, to bring
1: this out quick. <laughs> As of today. <laughs> As of today, right, yes. Um, but even there, it seems to me that he did not do anything with a plan. He just wanted this guy to stop being on TV saying bad things about him. And Donald Trump's like his whole life, like literally the dude fires people he doesn't like. He became famous for firing people on whims on television. Mm. And, and so he did it. And so you were talking about Trump missing opportunities. And I don't think that he—I've come to believe that he doesn't view these as opportunities. Agreed. That they're just—it's all just kind of happening. And there's something about him that's just—it's very—it's all there. My wife said—I don't think she would be upset about me saying this because I also thought it was a very smart point— you say that Obama had a very postmodern presidency; that he he existed, he really existed a little bit outside of his own narrative. Mm. You know, he was often commenting on himself, and you know, he was a narrator of his own presidency. And Trump, it's just like it's all right there; it's like so <laughs> yeah. one dimensional and reactive. Yeah, that I just, I've just have come to wonder if the illib- if the liberalism thing is a way to think about it, or it's really it's about him and his kind of feelings, not about him and his agenda or him and his his ideology or him and the government he even wants to run.
2: So I completely agree with the distinction between instinctual and ideological. I think that's helpful. But either instinctual or ideological can be illiberal. Mm-hmm. I think you can have deeply illiberal instincts, right? And so so you're right. When I say sort of a missed opportunity, I meant sort of the coherent Trump sure. would see this, right? I think the the thing that all of his instincts Want to coalesce towards as an ideology would say no no, no we're not going to nominate Neil Gorsuch we're going to nominate a real crony right now as you're saying some of the incompetence is salutary it's really horrifying to think what the result of that incompetence might be in an armed conflict mm-hmm. or in a terrorist attack or in any number of situations but in terms of the undermining of democratic norms and institutions the incompetence is good <laughs> it's, it's 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 a saving grace right um. So so I don't think that he thinks of it in those ways. If you told him, well, don't you think that Neil Gorsuch was, was a missed opportunity? I don't think he would get what you mean. He, wouldn't sort of, he doesn't see it that way. I agree with that. But you can be instinctually liberal. Let's not let him off the hook for that. I mean, being the president of the United States, who every time you're criticized by a major news outlet says they are enemies of the American people, mm-hmm. they shouldn't be allowed to do this. That is illiberal. I I, mean, I don't know what a liberal means if that isn't a liberal. James Comey, I agree that this wasn't, it's not part of some Trumpian master plan that like, well, step one is undermine the independence of the FBI and step two. No, it's not. But what's going on here is that the FBI is investigating his associates for links with Russia and he does not understand or cannot tolerate the thought that though he's president of the United States, he doesn't have complete power and control over the system, as you do as the CEO of a company you own, in a way that allows you to say, no, I'm going to shut this investigation
1: down because it's not in my interest. That is pure liberalism. So I have in some ways become less afraid of Trump and more afraid of us. And, and this goes back, I think, to your survey data. When I think of what are the lessons and what are the sort of updates to my own mental model that I need to make for this Mm -hmm. era, compared to where I was on the eve of inauguration, I find Trump malign. I find him very, very scary because I think the reactions he has and the way he manages or doesn't manage the government in a crisis could be genuinely catastrophic. I mean, the, the long tail risk with Trump is breathtaking. But the sort of Trump's coherent persistent pushing an agenda i've become less concerned about that <laughs> i don't think he coherently mm. persistently pushes agendas it's not not his way that said what i think we have seen is that a very very genuine form of a liberalism a liberal rhetoric which there's no doubt that he consistently engages in no. is not a big turnoff to the american public yes and that if you imagine it in the hands or in the mouth of a slicker candidate, yeah. a more effective politician. Trump has a kind of almost mystical, it feels like, connection to the forces he is marshaling. He under he understands them very authentically, but he does not understand them very cerebrally. Somebody who understood them cerebrally and so can manipulate them yeah. with more skill. Yeah. Um my sense of what the American people will and won't tolerate has very has changed. Yeah. And what has happened, I think, is Trump has very dramatically changed the Overton window. There is much that he is not doing, but that he is normalizing. Yeah. And someone who was a little more, you know, capable could, you know, with the base that he has constructed, do a lot of damage. A- and that to me is a place where I've become quite afraid. I think that prior to this election, I thought that American politics operated within a pretty defined ba- set of boundaries. And I don't believe there are boundaries anymore. And to what you were saying earlier about, you know, this has only been around a couple hundred years. It's not, you know, past past results are not a guarantee of of future success. Politics just feels a lot less safe to me Mm -hmm. than it did three years ago. I couldn't agree
2: more. I think that's exactly right. I mean, most Republicans, you talk to them more than I do, for I've been having interesting conversations with sort of never-Trumpers on the conservative side most Republicans don't like Trump. They don't see themselves in Trump, but they've gone along with a heck of a lot. Now, if you think about somebody who was much better at cloaking the liberal instincts and much better at the same time at pursuing a liberal ideology in a strategic manner, who didn't have so many just personal failings to attack him for, who didn't just needlessly reveal classified information in a meeting where, like, he doesn't really get anything out of doing it. It's just, like, a stupid thing he does. You know, think of how popular that person could be right now. And think of how strong support that person could have within their own party right now. So I don't want to conclude too early that we've contained... The threat from Trump, because I'm very aware that if we had talked about 15 days ago, we would have thought that, you know what, actually the moderating influences in the Trump presidency have taken over. When you go and look back at what people are writing around day day 100 of the presidency, it was all well. the first 10 days were crazy. And then it like slowly got reined in and I think we'll be fine. And now we're like, you know, into a week of just absolute Mayhem and and the first time and this is why the firing of the FBI director James Comey was so important, is that for the first time Trump has gone from anti-democratic rhetoric, illiberal rhetoric to an action that actually really violates but, but, very Q norms. But now we're seeing a reaction to it from from Republicans and so on, and and perhaps the reaction will be enough to really rein him in, or, and perhaps it will. I'm I'm quite optimistic at the moment as well. I just want to say.
1: We are now like, what, 120 days, 125 days in? Yeah, but presidencies like, only last for like 150, right? That's the normal.
2: <laughs> Can't possibly
1: go on much longer than this, mean, it us, feels right? like
2: we've been living this for 10 years. But, but, but here's one more point, which is, what happens when people try the crazy option and the crazy option has gone wrong? I want to think that they say, you know what? We've tried the guy who makes us these huge promises and doesn't really explain how he's going to cash them in. We've tried the guy who seem to be on our side, but 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 we, we got to play it. So let's go back to the safe, orthodox, straightforward guys. Perhaps that's how it works, or perhaps the conclusion that some of his base and sound will take is, well, okay, we tried this guy, and he turned out to be a fraud. He didn't get what he promised done. So let's try somebody else like him, or let's try somebody who's even more radical. Let's try somebody who's even more authentic. And so I don't yet know where American politics will end up after this. I think it could it could absolutely be. So I think the, the range of outcomes, the ultimate, I think it's important. The range of outcomes here is is huge. I think it's it's absolutely possible that this ends up inculcating people against a form of a liberalism in America. Where they're like, you know what? We had a brush with the abyss here. And for all kinds of reasons we got through it. Let us not do that again. And all of the people who are young now, all of the people who lived through Trump are going to have that as their, you know, deeply marking political experience. But no, no, no. You go away from a political mainstream and it becomes chaos. And even though you care much more about sports than about politics, you have to spend four years just arguing about the latest antics of this crazy... I don't want that to happen ever again in my life. I, that's my hope. Perhaps we'll get there. Perhaps we'll have a reinvigorated, renewed commitment to democracy, out of it, or perhaps people are going to say, "This guy didn't work. I'm still really unhappy. I'm even more mad now
1: that my hopes in this guy were dashed. Let's try something else." I, I, I don't know. Let's talk about the the surrounding institutional context because yeah. I think this is really important. It's important what could happen in the future, but it's also important what's happening now, and and we'll go through this a uh, you know piece by piece maybe. But I would say that. Overall, I've been very impressed by the response of American institutions. And then, with there's one crucial institution that terrifies me. But uh-huh. but let's say use the optimistic piece first. It seems to me the courts have responded very effectively, yeah. and not only very effectively, but the political system support for them mm-hmm. has been pretty unsparing. Even Donald Trump occasionally says maybe we should break up the Ninth Circuit Court. He doesn't try anything really. He has accepted that all most of his most controversial executive orders are just stopped. He's going to fight that in the courts. Mm. It seems to me the courts have been both assertive and effective in this era. Does that feel right to you? Uh, So far, absolutely. Again, you know, so far Trump has only um,
2: engaged in rhetoric against the courts and not in action against the courts. I don't know what would have happened if he had directed, you know, border control agents or ICE agents to just disregard the fact that the courts struck down executive orders, but but he hasn't
1: done that. And, and and the courts have certainly played the role. So yes. I've been fascinated, and, and I know people go back and forth on this, but the bureaucracy, mm-hmm. uh, the executive branch bureaucracy yeah. and the intelligence services. I'm not a hundred percent comfortable with the idea. I'm actually not very comfortable at, at all with the idea that the president has gone to war with the intelligence services, and I don't really want to see them persistently activated as an actor in American politics. Yes. And so I, I take some of the deep state concerns seriously. Um, but I also think they go quite a bit too far. I think that what they are seeing is things have gone off the rails. They have information that is supposed to be coming out, that is supposed to be taken seriously, that there's supposed to be an investigation going on where the in, the guy running it is not fired for for running it. And them in sort of consultation, cooperation with the media have, again, been very effective. And, and I don't think you can say enough good things at this point about, I think, the two sort of tribune champions of, of the media, right, the, the Times and the Post, who have just been extraordinary institutions in this era. Yeah. Um, all that has been much, much more powerful, particularly given the abdication early on of the congressional oversight functions mm. – yeah. That sort of linkage between bureaucrats who see something going really wrong and know that there's a a whistle they need to be blowing and media organizations which have really invested yeah. in uh in deep reporting, that has been, it seems to me, very effective.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. I, I mean, mean vitalized even. Yeah, and, and it is it is a golden age of investigative journalism. Um people have done incredibly
1: good and important work. I, I agree. Here's the one that scares the shit out of me. Okay. Parties. And in particular, in this case, the Republican Party. I can't say what would happen the Democratic Party in in a similar circumstance. But it seems to me, when we talk about how this could happen again, Mm. that the fundamental weakness that we saw here was parties have lost the capability, and the Republican Party in particular, which had been weakening before Trump, have lost the capability to set boundaries on their own nominating processes. Yeah. Republicans for years had been losing primaries where they had qualified people to like sort of like unqualified outsider candidates. You can go back to things like um, O'Donnell in Delaware. I mean, there were very strange Tea Party wins during this period. Sharon Angle in Nevada, they lost elections because of this. Um, I think almost lost certainly the 2016 election because they did this with Donald Trump. But nevertheless, the Republican Party primary system has become very vulnerable to takeover by unqualified demagogic candidates. But once that takeover is executed, the power of partisanship for all kinds of reasons is very strong. And so it's very unpredictable who gets nominated. But once somebody does get nominated, they really seem to start with 44% of the vote nationally. And when you got 44% of the vote, then you're just a Jim Comey reopening an email investigation away from getting 48.2 and winning in the right places. And now all of a sudden you're president or whatever he got. That fundamental weakness of the party system, even as partisanship has become the central defining force in American political life, feels to me like a gaping hole in democracy that is going to create problems persistently. A, a few thoughts. I mean, the first is you always side this line about weak parties and strong yeah, partisanship, which version. I want to credit to Julia yep. Azaria. Uh, Julia Sorry, I'm sorry, uh, who's at Mistress of Faction and is a political scientist.
2: Yeah, um, and I think it's, 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 it's a really deep insight into this weird political moment. Um, I want to say something historical for a moment and, and then struggle through understanding where we're at with this, because I'm really conflicted about this. So, you know, the historical thought is that actually parties are really an invention that came after our political system. There were no political parties in that sense when the constitution was written. And the idea of parties in, in the sense that we have today would have horrified the founding fathers. Um, so, so parties are this very odd thing that are an institution that are incredibly powerful, that actually structure politics in a way that I think is really necessary to make mass democracy work, but that aren't meant to be a part of a political system as it was set up to be. So so inherently, they're very, very weird things and i think we forget that sometimes um now what i don't get about parties today right is that okay so you have weak parties that's obvious right i mean like the republican party had no control over who its nominee was otherwise republican party elites would never have gone for donald trump the democratic party had surprisingly weak control over it um otherwise bernie Sanders wouldn't have come close to winning the the nomination um and if they have strong partisanship, so that's true, right? You see but even a bunch of people are pretty critical of Donald Trump. Who don't like him. In the end, most people who voted Republican four years ago, eight years ago, for very different candidates, Mitt Romney is a very different candidate from Donald Trump, um, end up voting for that guy because he bears the same party political label. So there seems to be strong partisanship. There's some counter evidence to that as well, though, right? I mean, when you ask, do you... could. Consider yourself a Democrat or Republican or an independent. The number of independents keeps going up over time. When you ask people what is your view of political parties, they actually have really negative views of them, right? And then you look at the European context, where you used to have a party system that, as, as Martin Lipset and Steinrocken wrote in the sixties, was frozen. Sometimes the center-left parties would gain a little bit, and then they'd form the government, and then after a while, the government would become unpopular, and so the center-right parties would gain a little bit, and they form a government, right? They had some alteration, alternation. But, but the basic parties in the system were the same. The, the party system as a whole was frozen. And then over time, at falls, you see a few new parties cro- cropping up, and now it's really close to boiling point. You look at Austria, which had as stable a party system as um, as the United States, in many ways, I mean, the parties in the in the parliament are virtually identical five years ago to what they were fifty years ago, and and the presidential election was always a runoff between the main center left party and the main center right party. At the past election, you have a runoff between a marginal far left party and uh, a, a strong but but used to be marginal far right party. You look at France; you've had a strong center left party, a strong center right party versus two parties were always the runoff in the second round of presidential election, with like one exception 2002, which was a weird year. This time, neither of them, for the first time in history, had a candidate in the last round of the election. And, you know, I can keep coming up with different examples, Greece, Spain, all of those places, you see a sudden pulverization of that party system. And a new president in France, whose, whose party was founded a year ago, right? So I know the big bugbear of American politics is the idea of an independent candidate who could win. And there's always people saying, oh, you know, what we need is an independent candidate. And he's going to win. And it never happens. And it's sort of like a mark of unsophistication among political scientists to think that an independent could ever become. I don't know anymore. You know, on the one side, there is this deep partisanship. But on the other side, there's deep dissatisfaction with political parties. And you could imagine somebody who's who's sort of charismatic and sells themselves as sort of being of neither party becoming really popular so so i don't know how to read that i, I buy that point about partisanship but i also see americans actually falling in a deep way
1: out of love with political parties so i i, I think we might be weaker than they seem so i have a lot of thoughts here one is that i would say that that just happened we just mm. had an independent win the presidency. Right, right, So something I often say to people when they come to me, uh, I give speeches sometimes, and it's almost every time somebody says, you know, don't we just need more parties? Don't we mm. need a third party? Yeah, yeah, Don't we need a fourth party? And the thing I always tell them is we have them. The way the American, they just happen within the main two parties. Right. The way the American system works is that the, you know, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party include a huge, very, very unusual range of views. In the Democratic Party, you have, you know, Bernie Sanders almost won. Not long after Bill Clinton was the standard bearer of that party. Not long after Al Gore, John Kerry were the standard bearers of that party. In another country, Bernie Sanders and Al Gore are not part of the same political party. And in the Republican Party, a guy who almost ran as a reform candidate for president, however many years ago that was, Donald Trump, he won. He won. Donald Trump is an independent candidate for president who took over the Republican Party. Now, the fact that he had to take over the Republican Party didn't mean that he was yoked to the Republican Party in certain ways. So he's more um, he's outsourcing more of his agenda to Paul Ryan in the House. Mm. I mean, there there are, there are ways in which this matters. But particularly given the weakening of the parties, I just think what we're seeing is very rapid changes in their character. Yeah. And um, we will call the the party that nominates Donald Trump the Republican Party. But it is quite a different institution than the party that nominated George W. Bush. To your point about independence, I'm actually writing a very long piece about this huh. right now. Um, I'll, I'll just give you one stat that I just find so amazing. Uh, there's a guy named Corwin Schmidt, a political scientist, who did a, a paper that I don't remember the name of offhand, but I've written about it. If you search Ezra Klein Corwin Schmidt Vox, you'll find it. And what he found was that he was looking at why there are so many more what he called floating voters, voters mm-hmm. who actually move between parties in different elections. And he was trying to answer the exact question you're asking. He said, on the one hand, we seem to have more consistent party loyalty and voting patterns than we've ever had. Yeah. But we also have more self-described independents than we've ever had. How can these two things coexist? He comes up with a couple answers. But the, the, the fact point that I, I just cannot get over is what he shows is that a self-described independent in recent elections mm. is more stable in which party they vote for than he self-described strong partisan was in the 1970s. Huh. So in the 1970s, if you said on yeah. the American National Election Survey, I am a strong Democrat, you were more likely to vote for a Republican than somebody who calls themselves an independent today. Interesting. And th- I think that the, the argument he comes to, which I find pretty persuasive, is that as a party so polarized ideologically, one, you may not like your party that much, but you really fear the other party. Like mm. if you look at how people's opinions on political parties have changed – their opinion about their political party hasn't changed that much. <laughs> right. that they really, their opinion about the other one about, yeah. has plummeted. And if you look at you know, things that measure fear of the other party, perception of threat of the other party, you know, would it be a disaster for the country if they won? All that has gone way, way up. When you look at what happened with Trump, and this is one of the big ways that I think about explaining his election, you know, one of the questions was, well, why didn't more people desert him? Um, A lot of Republicans said this guy's not qualified. You know, he's not honest. I don't trust him. Well, if you look at exit polling, 52 percent of Trump voters said they voted against Clinton. Right. And what the parties are good at doing, partisanship is, I think, a little bit overrated. Negative partisanship is wildly underrated. Mm. And in terms of how they function in the political system, though— they they create the same thing. They lock you into one party, even if you're doing it because you fear the other folks, uh, rather than the, the other way around. One more point from the Schmidt paper, which I think helps, you know, put a nice uh, gloss on this, is that he shows that the people who have high levels of political information back in the day, they were less clear on the differences between the two parties than people who have low levels of political information mm-hmm. today. And the reason is not that anybody was lying about how much information they have. The reason is that the parties are now much further apart. So it is much easier to know where the disagreements are Mm -hmm. and it is much harder to jump over the divide, right? Even if you did think Donald Trump was awful, if you're pro-life and you think Barack Obama has been a weak leader and you've been told Hillary Clinton is a criminal – you know what? Maybe you suck it up and you do it and you, you vote mm. for Trump anyway, which I think is what a lot of people did. So I'm not sure. I, I think the story is complicated, but I'm not sure it's contradictory. I think the parties are weak, but the preferences against the other party are very strong. I think independents mostly aren't independent. And I think there's a real uh, danger here. I think that it is very easy to imagine. I mean, we're, we watched it happen. Demagogues taking over one or the other party, but then starting – from this huge base of support, right, right, which is the sort of counter other party vote.
2: Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's, I, I think you used to talk about that a little bit in the run-up to the election, that sort of your hundred a year or so ago and my hundred years year or so ago would have been that, you know, the base number you start with is not that high when you have a crazy candidate, right? A candidate doesn't really represent anything in the political tradition of that party and so on. They become a nominee, they don't start at 40, it might start at 30, right at 20. And it turns out that no, even if Donald Trump becomes the lead candidate of Republicans, even people who otherwise really wouldn't vote for him, they, they don't especially like him. Like, well, they will end up voting for Republicans. And, and 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 so they go for him. And 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 the possibility of that wreaking havoc, certainly on the right with whoever Republicans nominate next, and they end up being an illiberal in ideology as well as an instinct and with skill rather than incompetence, I think is mind-bogglingly scary. I think there could be quite concerning forms of that on certain kinds of file of politics when you think of countries like Venezuela and and what happened there as well. But I, I, you know, I think that the distinction you drew between partisanship and negative partisanship is really interesting. Because the mechanism there really matters. If what we're saying is, look, people aren't really happy about the parties and so on, but in the end they always vote for the same party because in the end they have some deep sense of loyalty to their political party. And here's one story you could tell. Look, like, Republicans and even independents who normally vote Republican, they didn't like Donald Trump but in the end, they stood in the voting booth and they said, you know, I've always voted for Republicans. My dad has always voted for Republicans. I just cannot stomach betraying the Republicans, right? That would be one story. That's not what happened, right? What they did is that they stood in the voting booth and said, well, I don't trust the Republicans generally. I don't especially like Donald Trump, but my God, I'm I scared of Hillary Clinton. Now that means that there's much more space for a third option than in the other story. If what's driving the regularity of a vote is partisanship, then we're not going to jump to a third option. If what's driving it is negative partisanship, then once you have a candidate who looks viable, they may actually be willing to go there. Now, I, as I'm saying, I know this is the bugbear of American politics. It never happens. I'm just struck looking at Europe by the fact that 10 years ago, the idea that neither of the major political parties would be ruling today in Greece and France, and Austria, and it looking like a bunch of other countries following suit would have seemed as crazy as thinking that somebody who's not a Democrat or Republican could win in the States 10 years from now. So I'm just starting to think through what implications that might
1: have for American politics. I actually, I totally buy that. I, I think that as much as I buy the sort of traditional explanation of why third parties haven't prospered in America, I think that if you're looking in the last couple of years and you, you're confident that the future will be like the past, you're yeah. you're missing something sort of profound.
2: But that's the takeaway from this conversation, right? Like you, you just cannot have confidence that the future will be like the past in any respect. And
1: it might be, right? It might be.
2: But, but we just cannot be sure in the
1: way that we would have been. And you and I would have been a year or two ago. I think that is a good point to end. So here's the final question as always. What are three books that you've read? Um, could be on these subjects, could be on others that have influenced you that you think people should read? I love John Stuart Mill.
2: I think John Stuart Mill just expresses some of the animating thoughts and principles, but even more so aspirations of a decent politics and 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 of our political system still just about better than anybody else and and certainly in a much more visionary way. He was not a sort of milk toast liberal in the sense, but the ideals he stood for were incredibly radical out there at the time. Um, On Liberty is the obvious book to read, and it has renewed relevance today, but but actually I think a, a deeper book in some ways is The Subjection of Women, which speaks about the fact that it is a deep injustice to women in the 19th century that the husbands acquire sort of real rights and, and dominion over them, and, and that injustice needs to be remedied. But it's actually also an injustice to men, because they lose the ability and the vision of what it is to be in a relationship of equals. But when you're given that power legally in a relationship, you actually become incapable of understanding what it is to be in an equal relationship with your partner as well. And I think that's something that, by analogy, we should think about today as well, that we need to go back towards thinking what society do we want to construct collectively and how is it in all of our interests to think through a new identity of what it is to be an American rather than just as a matter of obligation towards people who are suffering. It's that too, but it's not just that. So that's, so John Stuart Mill. The second thing, I love V.S. Naipaul in general. A House for Mr. Biswas is actually in some ways not my my favorite of his novels, but I think it has the deepest point, which is a really deep investigation into what it is to be cripplingly poor and what it means to struggle against that poverty. And I think it's really important for, it's inculcated me, I think, against this idea that sort of the nobility of poverty and how generous people are when the poor and so on. I think it shows that no doubt some people are incredibly noble even for the poor and they are so generous even for the poor. But 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 how often living in a society of radical material scarcity makes you bitter and mean spirited because you literally don't know what you're gonna have for dinner. And and I think it just dispels a lot of that sort of romanticism which is which 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 I think is really salutary and the third is 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 probably my favorite novel um the the leopard uh, which tracks the slow disintegration of a social political system in 19th century sicily um follows this um sort of nobleman who sees who, who still has loyalty to that political system even though he starts to see it's unjust sees the liberal democratic revolution sort of happening um, and Berth has some sympathy for it, but at the same time recognizes that it's going to make a whole bunch of promises that it won't keep. And he's asked to become a senator in the newly established Italian Senate. And he says, you know, you're deluding yourself if you think that the Senate is going to bring any real change for Sicily and make Sicily a better place. Um, but it also has the line, which is sort of seen critically, but but I think also has some positive resonance, um, that in order to save the few things that were positive about that system, you sort of have to change everything. So It's this famous line from Italian literature, for everything to stay the same, everything has to change. And and thinking through, I think in a weird way now, uh, there is a social and political and economic class that's ripe for the picking. And I think if people want to think about how to preserve some of the things that are valuable in our system, we have to think seriously about how to have some really radical change and how to make some real sacrifices Precisely because there's some things in the system that we do want to save.
1: And let's say you're someone out there, you've been listening to this, you think that Yasha guy is pretty smart. Where can people find you on the internet? Where can they follow your work? They can listen to my podcast, The Good Fight, um, at New America. I listen to it's great.
2: Thank you very much. Um, that means a lot. Um, they can uh, look at my weekly column at Slate, also called The Good Fight. Uh, And they can patient themselves um, and buy the book that that I just finished a draft of about the crisis of liberal democracy and the rise of populism, and most importantly, what to do about it, which will be out with Harvard University Press uh,
1: early next year. Joshua Monk, thank you very much. Thank you, Ezra. Thank you the Yasha Monk. That was a great conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Thank you to my producers, Peter Leonard and Bird Pinkerton. Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast, and we'll be back next week.